Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Eric Tonis. I'm one of the elders at Grace, and I'm glad to be here with you this morning. My, my kids get a laugh out of strange things to me sometimes. I have had a common occurrence in my life of going outside, doing something, coming back to go into the house, only to find that one of my children has intentionally locked me out of the house. It, it happens quite frequently, actually, and often I will, I will go to open the door and I will look up and my daughter, Paige, for instance, will be standing there with a giant smile, laughing at me and pointing at me as I, I'm locked out of the house. And sometimes she'll make me stand out there and just look at her and go, and, and she... She gets the biggest kick out of that. And I was thinking why that's fu so funny to her. I, it, it's not nearly as funny when she locks her brother out. There's something funny about locking me out because it's my house, right? She gets an especially big charge out of locking me out of my house. I paid for the door you just locked me out with, right? I bought that doorknob. Now open the door, right? And I was thinking as we were singing that song that there's, there's a, somewhat of a parallel there because do you realize how absurd it is to say prepare him room when you're talking about the creator? Right? There, there's something crazy about the fact that we have to prepare room in our hearts for the God who made our hearts. Yeah, that's great. Somebody try to get in? Just be a child. All right. Um, um, let me in. That was I planted that little. Bit. Um, yeah, but I mean, how crazy it is! Is it that we have to say to one another, which is what we were just doing, prepare room in your heart for God. I mean, it it is a poignant thing, isn't it, that when God came to His own earth to save human beings made by Him in His image, that there was literally no room in the inn for Him. There was this this image, this literal image of our posture toward our creator. No, thank you, not now. I'm too busy. I've got too much going on. I've got different priorities than you taking up residence at the heart of my heart. But the fact is, God in his grace has allowed that reality to come about, and he does get down like a, like a, a parent for a little child saying, saying, we need to talk, because the state of your heart, the state of your life as a result of the state of your heart, has crowded me out to the periphery, and you don't consider me much at all. We're preaching this morning out of the book of Haggai in our Advent series. I will, I'm, we're not going there for a few minutes, but I'll give you a head start on finding Haggai. Now, it's one of those tough minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. If you just go to the New Testament and, and then go to the Gospels and then go to Malachi and then just work your way back over ever so slowly and you'll find Haggai there. But we're preaching out of Haggai. And Haggai is a book about preparing room in our hearts for God, of making room in our hearts for God, because that's not naturally how we are. We are not naturally God-word. We are not naturally people who clear the decks of our heart for God and then organize our lives accordingly. We tend to fill our hearts with so many other things besides God himself. And, and that's exactly, in Haggai, that we see the state of the people being. They had crowded God out of their hearts. This is a, a book about the temple. 
this meeting place with God. We're thinking about the temple this morning. Please don't think that the temple is just something for Judaism or, or other religions. Realize that this idea of a temple, which is just a meeting place with God, is prevalent throughout all of human history. Just about every religion you can imagine has a temple concept and literal temples, which are places we set apart to meet with God. Isn't it fascinating that even if someone wasn't operating from biblical instruction, there has been an instinct in human beings to prepare a place, to set apart a place to meet with God. There's a sense that you don't just saunter into his presence. There's a sense that there's, there's a sacredness to meeting with God that requires a sacred place to do that. World religions are replete with temples. And the, the biblical religion is centered on this temple idea of a meeting place with God. That's not to say God isn't everywhere present all the time with his whole being. He is. And he wants to make sure that in the midst of giving his people a temple in the Bible, that they don't think he's like other pagan local deities that are just located in one place or one temple. He wants to make sure, as Paul says to the Athenians, that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Don't reduce him to that, but realize there is something right about a sacredness in your approach to God, that God does focus his presence at times and particular places because we need to learn some things about approaching God in general. Yes, you can talk to God in the shower, but there is a sacredness about approaching God too. He wants us to know really three things when he gives us this temple idea in the Bible. The first is, approaching God is serious. Again, it doesn't, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen in everyday life, but a, a temple observance of approaching God teaches us that there's something very serious about this and something very corporate about it at the same time. Temples are not places you go by yourself, but the people of God gather there. It's a corporate reality, so it's serious and it's corporate. The second thing you find in temple worship is that there's a barrier between you and God that needs to be dealt with. It's called human rebellion, human sin. We don't just saunter into God's presence because we have offended him. We have sinned against him and we need atonement. We need a sacrifice. We need an offering of some kind to go before God. Now you get some, some pretty distorted views of this in different religions throughout the world. And you may be even offended by what you find in the Bible with, with these animals having to be sacrificed. But what God's wanting us to know and wants his people to know for thousands of years with these bloody sacrifices is not only is it serious to go before God, but sin is serious. Sin is very serious, and for thousands of years, God had his people shed blood so they would learn that the wages of sin is death. And you don't go before God flippantly, and you don't go before God in your sinful state. That needs to be dealt with. It needs to be atoned for. This is a very offensive idea to many people in our society, and maybe some of you sitting here. And I realize that this can be a struggle for you. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that in our hearts are some pretty putrid things. If we're, if, if we're really honest, if we take an honest look at our heart, even after all these years of God working in my life, I still look at my heart and I say, ugh, so often. 
And God's holy. God is perfect. So if I'm going to draw near to God, my sin needs to be dealt with. The ugliness in my own heart needs to be dealt with because God's holy. And so I need to be made holy by him to go into his presence. I can't do that myself. And that's the last thing I want us to realize temple worship teaches us. It's that God takes the initiative and he provides the means by which we are able to approach him and our sin is dealt with. God provides the means. It's sacrifice. It's atonement. That is that means. It's making at one those who were enemies. Atonement. And so, so these very important lessons are what God's wanting his people to know about temple worship. So now we move to temple observance in our passage this morning as the prophet Haggai goes to the people. Here's what's happened. Solomon built his temple, and it was beautiful. And for 400 years, God's people enjoyed worshiping him in this temple he prescribed and Solomon went ahead and built. And then in 586, the Babylonians come in and they destroy not just Jerusalem, but they destroy the temple. And they take God's people out of the temple area, but also the promised land, and they go into this great dispersion of God's people. God's people are now spread around the world, and all these dangers of syncretism, of becoming like the other peoples, and the loss of tradition and history and culture is starting to happen, and language. And and so this dispersion takes place, the Babylonians come in, and then only 50 years after the Babylonians take over, the Persian king Cyrus comes in and he takes over the Babylonians and all of their possessions with them. You know, world leaders come and go. Isn't that really good news? They come and go. The Babylonians, bye, Cyrus comes in. And, and just a year after Cyrus takes over, he says, go back, you can go back. I'm not gonna hold you captive. Go ahead. And he had a different way of managing things than the Babylonians. And so the people got to go back to the promised land. They got to go home again. After, after half a century of being out of the promised land, they get to go back home. And they do. And you can imagine how wonderful it was to get back home to the promised land that was way more than just a place that was special to them. It represented the ability to commune with God as they had done, the fulfillment of his promises for them that he made after the exodus on Mount Sinai, that they would have this land that he promised to Abraham even long before that. And they get back home, so it's got all this religious significance, this relationship with God's significance, but something fascinating happens. They get back home, and it seems something had happened in their hearts. Maybe it was the time away from home. You know, they say, distance makes the heart grow fonder. But sometimes the other one's true, out of sight, out of mind. Which is it? I don't know. But for them, it appeared that their hearts grew cold. And do you know they got back into the promised land, back to Jerusalem, and 18 years passed. And it seemed to never occur to them to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. 18 years. Some of you are only 18 So for your whole lifetime, the Jews were back in the land and nobody ever said, hey, we're back. The whole point of being here is communing with God the way he says. We get to worship the true God in the true way. Let's get back at it. Oh, I know it's been devastating to us to see the temple destroyed the way we have, but let's get back at the work. We're not back in the promised land just to set up our homes again, are we? Well, apparently that's exactly what happened. 
They seem so consumed with getting their lives back together, just their own personal, very little lives, that they didn't get back to the task of being in the promised land in the first place and rebuilding the temple. So after 18 years, Haggai comes and wants to say, hello, let's do a little priority check here. And that's exactly what he does. Let's pick it up here. And Haggai will start in chapter 1, verse 2. Let's pray as we go to God's word together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that it changes us when we avail ourselves to it and the spirit works. So we pray that's exactly what would happen this morning. We've got a monumental task before us of clearing out the clutter of our hearts to leave more room for you. We realize that's not just something we do apart from you. So would you work, please? Amen. Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, of the armies. Consider your ways. Consider your ways, he says. He'll say this again. This is the first major exhortation we must hear from the Lord this morning. Consider your ways. You have sown much and have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Let's pause here. This is what God wants us to do. He wants us to step back and assess our lives. This is not just for those people a long time ago. It's for us this morning. God wants you this morning, as you sit there, to consider your ways. That means take stock of your life. Make an assessment, starting with your heart, as God said. And then think about that way where your heart is spins out into everything else you do, right down to choice of entertainment, how you spend your money, your free time, your weekends, what you really are driven by, what are you most passionate about? If someone listens to you talk, where does the passion meter really go up? When you see the way you invest your time, your energy, your efforts, what really grips your heart most? He's saying, consider your ways. Think about your life. Think about your life honestly. Ask God to give you the ability to be honest with yourself and dispel of any self-deception that may keep you from honestly considering your ways. Think about your life. And it can be deceptive because it's not just about the activities. It's not primarily about the activities. It's about why you're doing the things you're doing. 
what's motivating you. Yes, it does get down to the choices you make, but it starts with the motive for the choices you make. Because you can be doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons, and God finds it repugnant. And so we've got to consider our ways. He's saying, what he's saying is, is okay, you're investing in a self-absorbed way. You're investing in a way that's obsessed with you, yourself, your little arrangement, even if there are virtuous goals you have and, and things that are good and even gifts from God. Are you stewarding them in a way that is pleasing to him for his glory in a spirit-empowered way? Is it fundamentally about the reason for which you exist? Communion with God, relationship with God, intimacy with God, enjoying him Enjoying your creator, knowing your creator, that's why you live, no matter the details. Is that what grabs you? If that, is that what consumes you? Or are you just nice religious people? Or is this something that's gripped your heart that's taken over in your life? So, consider your ways. And then he says what? He, he told them... Uh, I'll consider your ways for you. I'll tell you exactly how it's going. You're investing all this energy into your little self-absorbed life, and it's not satisfying you, isn't it? Is it? You're not getting what you're hoping from this. This isn't quite matching up to the expectations you had for it, is it? Oh, it seems to satisfy for a while, but it's so fleeting, isn't it? He's saying, you're spending a lot of energy and effort, but what's it producing? He's saying, tell me, how's that self-absorbed life working out for you? That's what he's asking this morning. How's that working out for you? Tell me. Maybe not enough time has passed for you to see the emptiness, to see the message of Ecclesiastes, that when you live life only under the sun, disconnected from the things of eternity, from God's priorities, knowing him and seeing his kingdom advance, it leads to nothing but emptiness. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That's what, that's what Solomon says. You know, I, I, I tried everything. I tried uh, power and, and women and, and a pleasure and even wisdom. And none of it added up to anything of lasting value. That's what he's asking you. How's that working out for you? How's that life of building your own little empire, your own little kingdom, your own little place of security, independent of me? How's that working out? That's what he's asking this morning. And rather than that life, what does he call us to do? Verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. Here's the priority. I want to please God with my life. I want him to take delight in my life. I want to live so he takes pleasure. That's the, the powerful centering reality. And here's the other one, that I may be glorified. We are created in God's image to glorify him. We are to live a radically God-centered life. And he does this so he may be glorified, says the Lord. So that's the bottom line question. Because you can be doing all the same things, but for all the wrong motives, but to shift your motives and say, I want to live my life, whatever the details, so he's glorified, so he takes pleasure in my life. And we know he takes the greatest pleasure when we take our greatest pleasure in him. Verse 9, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies in ruins... 
because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. This is a strong rebuke that we need to hear from him, every one of us. This, this passage has worked me over in the past few weeks. It has worked me over, and I, I pray you will, you will want God to work you over too in this. We all have plenty of room for God to work us over this morning. We're not home yet, but that's our goal, to get home hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, and see a whole lot more worthy of reward than burning up his wood, hay, and stubble. A life of meaninglessness. And so, we are hearing from the Lord this morning. Our lives should be different, in other words. And what seemed to have crept in was not active rebellion. Here's, here's the insidious thing about this. I don't think anyone would have looked at Israel at this time and say, oh, look, they've fallen into pagan idolatry. They're worshiping golden calves. Look at them. They're, not, they're offering to Baal. Uh, they're offering their children in the fires of Moloch. It didn't seem that was the problem. It was actually, in some ways, a more insidious problem, and that is indifference. Apathy. They weren't in active rebellion where someone would easily point it out, but they seemed so indifferent. I played basketball with a guy yesterday. And in some ways, he represented, it, it, it seems to me, that what's at the heart of the problem of so many, especially young men today. He just seemed so indifferent. I wanted to say, go play tiddlywinks instead of basketball, right? Why would you come out with a bunch of guys playing seriously when you're just so lackadaisical? And I'm just 50, I'm, I'm his grandfather's age, and I'm, I'm hustling, and he's like, whatever. Get out of here, you know. And I'm just thinking that we just have this lackadaisical indifference to life as Christians. Now, basketball doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. I'm happy he got his heart rate up. He barely, barely got his heart rate up. But, but there can be this whatever mentality that's killing us. It's actually uncool to try hard in our culture. It's uncool to try hard. What? Because if you don't try hard, well, you can't fail. Wrong. Indifference is the problem here. They're indifferent, and their self-absorbed lives show it. And they have frustration and discontentment in the midst of it, and God's wanting them to realize that. He's saying, you know, you're not content, are you? There's frustration, aren't you? You're not finding the fulfillment you're longing for. And so let's be different. And I'm very concerned about this. We live in such a nice, comfortable place of the world. Most people in the world would do anything to live where we do. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Pinterest. <laughs> or fantasy football. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, with the actual details of the way we often can become so consumed with living our lives in the burbs of Southern California. But we've got to step back and say, why? Why do I want a nice home? Why do I want a good job? Why do I want things the way I want them in my life? What's my driving motive in this? What do I live for? That's... The question, do I live for an all-consuming passion to know God no matter the details? Or is my life consumed with setting up this little house as if this is ultimate, as if this is all that matters? And the, the, the hard thing about this is you can do this in good religious things too. 
I can be a preacher and a teacher of theology in a way that is actually indifferent to God, even though I can con my students most of the time. So it's not about the details. It's not about the specifics. Although at some point it gets down to just asking questions about those things. You know, I, I really think Christians are far more, far more willing to talk about their pornography use than how much they give. We should have accountability groups for giving, right? <laughs> we don't just go around and say, did you look at pornography? But how much did you give this week? <gasps> no, no, that, we can't go there, can we? Why not? <laughs> our investment, how we're investing our lives, there are some things that are just private that we don't include in these conversations in accountability groups. Why not? There are some things that really get at the heart of our idolatry of our indifference that we've got to address and go right after. Let's be so different than the, the vapid, banal, empty culture all around us where people fill these streets at night. I love that you can see the city here. Fill these streets at night looking for the, the greatest time ever. And half the time they can't even remember what they did. Let's be so different than that. Listen to Jim Elliott, one of my heroes. I read his biography and journal when I was about 18, and it changed my life. He, he's been one of my heroes ever since. Listen, after he graduated from college and was preparing to go to the mission field for a few years, he worked as a painter in suburb, uh, the sub suburban Portland. And look at what he says after he's trying to plant a church there. He says, generally, I feel quite useless unless they are helped by my being here, the, the Christians. But total ignorance of the truth is the general status of churchgoers hereabouts. I know that my time is limited, and unless someone else moves here to help them, there's little chance of their going on. He's going to invest for a couple years before he goes to the mission fields, and he's not seeing something happening in their lives that's going to last after he leaves. This is what he says. I know my time is limited, and unless someone else moves here to help them, there's little chance of it going on. Oh, that God would shake up some of those married couples around Portland with their prim unconcern for souls and saints, dabbling with building lots, houses, jobs, babies, silverware, while souls starve for what they know. God shall not hold us guiltless either. He shall suffer loss. What is needed here? And here's his big solution. I want you to hear the simplicity of the big solution. What we need here is for a family to move in, take work, open the home, and teach truth. Radical. <laughs> Sounds like a grace group meeting to me. So at first I said, oh, we're doing that. We've got lots of people at Grace who are doing just that, taking work, opening the home, teaching truth. Opening the Bible and, and worshiping God and praying together and digging into the scriptures and, and growing together. We're doing that. Little temples and homes where people are meeting with God. And I think, we're doing that. How great. And we are, and I, I think there are so many people at Grace who aren't consumed with their panel houses, and I don't want just this to be an exhortation this morning, but I want it to be a word of comfort for many of us who say, oh, I do think that although I have all these details of a job and a home and, and making things nice in some ways and a car that can actually take somebody to the airport when they need it and not fear of breaking down all the time, and, and that you, you do have details, don't you? 
But there's a God-centeredness to it all. There's an enjoyment of God at the heart of it all. That's your driving passion. That's your driving goal. There's a service to him and people for his glory in your life that's driving everything. If no one ever rolls their eyes at you and thinks you're overboard, you're not getting close enough to true discipleship. We are so fearful of persecution of a, of a coworker saying, what in the world? Really? That's how you spend your weekends? Pfft. You give how much to church? That's crazy. You spend your life how? We, we've got to change it. And Jamelli concludes this way. We cuddle around the Lord's tables that were the last coal of God's altar and warm our hands. When Christ is charging us with the unmet, unchallenged, untaught generation of heathen now doing their Christmas shopping, it makes me boil when I think of the power we profess and the utter impotence of our actions. Believers who know one-tenth as much as we do are doing 100 times more for God with his blessing and our criticism. If only I could write it, preach it, say it, paint it, anything at all. If only God's power would become known among us. And that happens only when he becomes your all-consuming passion. Everything for you. Does this sound extreme to you? It's not from God's perspective. It's just normal Christian living. And it takes place in ways that most people don't even notice or know about. It, it's not about loud displays of anything. It's about living for him in your daily life in the midst of all the details of your daily life. When God is infinitely more important than everything else in your life, everything else becomes important in the right way. And a source of profound joy, a good meal now, becomes not something that's an idol to you, that's an end in itself that you put on Facebook to show everybody how great your life is, but something you enjoy to the glory of God, that you actually worship him more intensely because he created food for us to enjoy and provided one more meal for you. Actually, food takes on a worshipful quality. It's more important than it's ever been when God's more important than anything else. So it doesn't mean we reject the world, we hate the world. It means we love it like never before because it's in its rightful place, out here, not here. We see it as something God gave us to enjoy. We realize that in him are the paths of life that fulfill us forevermore. That's what this is all about. And, and please don't think this is just foreign missions or ministry. This is no matter your vocation, no matter the details. If, if you're a, a business owner or working as a construction worker or a homemaker or a lawyer or a plumber or a school teacher, I'm so grateful we've got school teachers at Grace, lots of them, who see teaching kids as a way of glorifying God and drawing them to him. It's glorious to see how many ministry-minded, kingdom-minded teachers we have at Grace. And so we've got to think differently no matter what, what it is you're doing as a neighbor, a husband, a father, uh, a son or a daughter, as a newly engaged couple, parents of a newly engaged couple. Yeah, whatever it is, say, this is exciting, but I'm excited because God's going to be glorified because they're married more than they would have been, he would have been if they were single. That, see, that sort of driving passion for God's glory and everything is what we live for. And I, I want us to realize that this isn't just about um, the details, although it gets to that. So we celebrated Jerry Wyricks. If you don't know the Wyricks, they're just this incredible 
godly couple at Grace for the past 15 years, and they're just amazing. We went to Dell's 80th birthday party last week, and Dell turned 80, and we remembered at this party that when Dell retired at 70, what he and Jerry decided to do was to go for two years and work on a missionary uh, mercy ship. And here's a picture of Jerry working on the ship after, uh, no, that's not, that's not what I want. Um, that's not Jerry. That's Jerry, pe- peeling potatoes. Uh, that's, what, that's her retirement. Who does that? Who does that? Seriously, who retires and goes work to, mission work on, a, on the mercy ships? The Wyricks did. They had a whole different mentality about retirement. They weren't thinking first and foremost about Winnebago's and golf courses. And there's nothing wrong with Winnebago's and golf courses. Do you hear me? It's just why? Why are you doing it? And, and they retire on a mercy ship. You know, the, the horrific shootings last year in the church in Charleston, South Carolina, it reminded me of another incredibly radically different way of thinking about life because you're a Christian, because you live for him. You know, this, the killer just went on trial. But last year when he was arraigned for murdering nine people because he hated the race they were, I don't know if any of you heard this or remember seeing this, but family members of the murdered victims were able to speak to him at his arraignment via video. He, he, was, he was on a screen in the courtroom. Do you remember what they said to him? I want to read these to you and realize how radically different this way of thinking is in our lives. Here's the first woman. Here's what she said to the killer of her mother. I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I'll never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you. Have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. If God forgives you, I forgive you. What? What? Listen to Anthony Thompson, relative of Myrna Thompson who was killed. Here's what he said. I would just like him to know that to say the same thing that was just said, I forgive him and my family forgives him, but we would like him to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Christ, so he can change him and change your ways so no matter what happens to you, you'll be okay. Listen to Felicia Sanders, mother of Twanza Sanders who was killed. We welcomed you Wednesday night to our Bible study with open arms. You've killed some of the most beautiful people I know. Every fiber in my body hurts, and I'll never be the same. Twanza Sanders was my son, but Twanza Sanders was my hero. May God have mercy on you. Who talks that way? Christians. Christians do, who've taken the gospel to heart so much that when everything in you wants vengeance, you offer forgiveness. Because you know you've been forgiven much. It's the only way you can do that. That is just astounding to get to that point. These are heroes of the faith for us. We've got to think, we've got to live so differently. We've got to live in ways that challenge us every day to move beyond the emptiness of our culture. Because what we've come to realize is that the temple is this glorious place of meeting with God. But it isn't the end of the story either. uh, So the people say, okay, Haggai, we'll do it. 
we will go and we will rebuild the temple. And they get after it. The Spirit of God stirs up the leaders. He stirs up the people. And they say, we're going to rebuild this temple. The whole reason we're here is communion with God, to know him. So they begin to rebuild the temple. And they go after it for a month. A month. And then they get weary or discouraged or disappointed. And it seems clearly what's going on. They remember what the temple used to be like, and it seems so measly and so poultry, paltry, and it's taking so long, and it, it, there was probably poultry there too, but they, and they, they, uh, they look at what's developed after a month, and they're discouraged, and they're throwing up their hands, and so they need another exhortation just a month into the work, and we find that in chapter two. You ready? Here we go, verse one. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? See, there were people still alive who remember Solomon's temple. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of of hosts. He promises that if you set your hand to the test, if you don't fear, if you continue to work, don't be discouraged, don't be disappointed, don't compare yourself to others. Well, Facebook has been deadly in this way, hasn't it? We look at every, you know, they've done research, it's significantly validated research that the more time someone spends on Facebook, the less satisfied with their life they are because they're comparing it to the best image of other people's lives all the time that they're putting out there. And nobody ever you know, feels like they're having as much fun as everybody else. And so we live comparatively. Well, my life seems so measly. My ministry seems so measly. I've worked at it for a while and it hasn't amounted to anything. What's going on here? And even the work of the ministry can be compared to the one down the road or the one we heard about or read about or saw in the DVD series of how to have ministry. And before you know it, the churches have an inferiority complex and individuals and families and ministries can always feel like they're just never quite amounting to anything. But if we realize the way God fulfills these promises will never go in that direction because the way he fulfills these promises is astounding. We, you saw these photographs of the temple here. Um, this is now all that's left of the temple that indeed was rebuilt. It, it was rebuilt by Herod the Great. And might I say he did it for all the wrong reasons for himself. And so this wasn't the fulfillment, this latter fulfillment that was more glorious. No doubt the people thought, this is as close as you can get. Now this, this most sacred of places of Islam is right where the Holy of Holies used to be, but that's the Western Wall, the closest that you can get now. 
to where, the, where you went and offered sacrifice. And so, so they must have said, see, God did fulfill. Look how glorious Herod's temple is. But then a carpenter walks into this temple using these stairs, which were the stairs for the common people, not the special people, the common people. And he teaches them what the real fulfillment was. Would you keep your finger in Haggai and go to John 2? Here's the real fulfillment of the promise we just read. John 2, verse 13. The passer of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Busyness. Commerce had crowded out worship. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples and told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days... I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. And then we get an interpretation they seem not to have gotten. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus comes into his temple using these stairs where the common people go. And he said, this temple is just a foreshadowing of me and my body that will be laid down for the sinners that need my atoning work and it will be raised up again. This temple that had existed for all these years were just, were just, was just preparing us for Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the temple. He's the, where, the one, the place we meet with God. It's in Christ, the one who both offers the sacrifice and is the sacrifice, is the place we meet with God. This is the fulfillment of this. See, that's why it changes so much when we realize that Jesus is this. We don't look now at the work of our hands. We look at Christ and we don't ask, how impressive is my work of my hands for God's glory to the world? We say, is this honoring to Christ? Is this something that he, thank you, dear, um, that he, she takes care of me. Thank you, sis. Um, uh, we ask, is, is Jesus exalted through my life? No matter what the details are, no matter how impressive it may appear to people in the world, we ask, was this done for the glory of Christ and the power of the Spirit so he'll be honored? No matter how it turned out, no matter how impressive it looks now, whether or not anybody statistically thinks you're significant, is this done for Jesus' glory because he has now taken over. He's given me access to God through his body given for me, through his blood shed for me, through his victorious resurrection. I now live by faith and now everything's for him. Jesus is the one who fulfills the temple. He's the one that we meet with God through. Are you discouraged this morning? 
about your life, your ministry, your marriage, your relationships, your health, your finances? Are you discouraged about effort you're putting in that doesn't seem to be producing anything? Don't ask the question, do I see legitimate reason to see success from a worldly standpoint? Ask, is God pleased by this because I'm doing it because I want to know him more and for other people to know him more? And if that's the case, you can live in confident freedom that God will say, well done for that, because you're found in Christ. Jesus is the one who fulfills the temple. But here's the amazing thing. That's not the end of the story either. We become the extension of his fulfillment of that temple, that meeting place with God. The Bible goes on to say that we're the, God, we're the temple. Not only is Jesus the temple, we are his people. We, the church, are the fulfillment and the extension of Jesus' ministry as well. 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple individually and even more so collectively as God's people and that God's spirit dwells in you? We become the means then by which God shakes the heavens and draws people to himself and glorifies himself and brings peace to the earth. You know, Christmas time is about peace on earth, goodwill to men. No, it's not. Unless you read the rest of the verse. Peace on earth, goodwill to men for those on whom his favor rests. And those on whom his favor rests are those who find their lives in Christ. Apart from him, it's not some happy peace on earth, goodwill to men. Jesus comes as a judge one day. And unless you're found in him and God's favor rests on you because of that, it's not peace for you. But if you do find life in Jesus, it is peace. It is peace. You find your peace in him once and for all. And then we become the means through which he glorifies himself and extends this world and brings people to himself. We become the light on a hill. It's an amazing thing. We have that privilege. When we gather here, we can seem like such a frail, even though we all get sort of polished up on Sunday morning, we can look so frail in a motley crew. But the truth is, we are the temple of God and we meet, we are a place where God is meeting with his people in a special way. Do you approach church that way? Do you approach meeting with God out of the 168 hours a week? One of them is spent Gathering with God's people. Do you approach that one of the 168 with seriousness and sacredness? I'm getting to meet with the people of God for this precious hour that then extends out in the rest of my life. Or is it like other things? Is there a flippancy to it? Oh, it's easy for us to go so caught up in all the details that even the one hour a week of sacred gathering becomes just one more piece of clutter. Instead of time of a time we meet with God. But here's the good news. There will come a day, like in the Garden of Eden where there wasn't a temple. There wasn't need for one. There was no sin. There's coming another day where that will be true as well. And it's in heaven. There's no temple in heaven. Did you know that? This is how the Apostle John puts it. When the new Jerusalem descends, and I saw the temple of the city for Uh, I saw no temple in the city for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb. See, the temple is not a long-term thing because it's been fulfilled in Christ and the Lamb will be there. And so he is now in this unencumbered way, the one we have fellowship with for all of eternity and worship for all of eternity and our job is to just get a head start on that day now. 
Because we now are the temple and we can meet with him and commune with him. And we do that as a people of God. And then we become the means through which he brings people to himself. When they meet with us, I was singing hymns with our grace group in our living room one time. And, and the next day my neighbor said, hey, I heard you guys singing last night. It was a summer day, our windows were open. And he said, and I stood in my driveway and I sang with you for half an hour. I knew most of the songs you were saying. I grew up in a Methodist church and I hadn't heard them in years. It was really great. See, worship was just coming out of a puny little house in La Mirada, California and it touched a neighbor. We, we become the, the place of meeting with God that then extends to the world. What a privilege. What a joy. Let's pray. Lord, help us to rest in Jesus, the fulfillment of the temple. Thank you, Lord, that these astounding things are indeed true, that you tell us in this very old book. Lord, I thank you for the word of exhortation Haggai brings to us to consider our ways. I pray we would do that and put you at the heart of everything. And Lord, would you, in our moments of discouragement, um, strengthen us to work and not fear and rest in Jesus, the fulfillment of the temple, and take seriously our privilege of being the meeting place with God, he's now working in this world more than anywhere else. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.